Oh, dear Father, we thank you for these powerful words of Paul's today. And especially, Father, that we have your spirit with us today. Thank you that your spirit is in us and that you dwell in us and we in Christ. May your spirit be with us today to teach us, help us understand the power and the truth of your word today. And may Carolyn's words be touching to us and you work through her again through your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I, I need to begin with a, a sad note. Um, many of you know Catherine Roseberry. And just in January, Catherine was diagnosed with bone cancer. And this morning, she went to be with Jesus. So uh, very sad, very quick, merciful. Um, Martha said, Martha Strisco says that she had, was comfortable all the way through. She died at John Muir. They did not have to move her and, you know, put her through all that um, kind of upset. So I just want to pray for Floyd and her family. You pray with me. Father, we grieve the loss of one of our dear sisters. We thank you, Father, that though we grieve, we absolutely know where she is today. And we celebrate the, the things that we're going to talk about in Romans today as being so real, that Catherine is with you. But we pray for those who are left we pray for Floyd, for Catherine's daughter, Andrea, and her son, Brad, for other members of the family. We pray, God, that you would comfort them, surround them with your presence and your peace. We pray that your people would surround them and um, give them the gift of uh, love and support during these days. And God, I pray for this, the table where Catherine sat. I pray for those women as they now grieve an another loss, as they lost Mary Evans just recently. Thank you for the way you use pain and loss to bind us together. And so we pray that as this table grieves together, you would also be binding them closer together and to you. Thank you for resurrection, new life, life abundant here, and extraordinary life beyond. We thank you we can be sure of those things. And we pray in your name. Amen. Well, Romans. Quite a ride, hasn't it been? Quite a ride. Lily, where are you? Would you stand up, please? As if you haven't had to stand up enough. We now want to say, Lily, thank you.
beautiful teaching over these last weeks. We're so grateful. I grew up in a um, very conservative church. Very so conservative that they wouldn't even support Billy Graham when he came to Cleveland because he was too liberal. He sat on the stage with people that weren't believers. That'll give you a clue, right? But I, I heard the Bible in that church. I heard the Bible every Sunday morning. But it wasn't until I was about 30 years old and my husband and um, our kids and I were in a church where the pastor decided that he was going to preach through Romans very carefully, very slowly. And I thought I knew the gospel until I went through that study of Romans. I had had pieces, you know, pieces of the gospel, but I had never seen the big picture. I had never seen this perfection of God's plan until I studied Romans. And I, I still have the notes from that study. And as I look through those notes, there, is, there are uh, little light bulbs that I drew all through those notes because it was like, oh, oh, I get it now. I didn't get it before. You know, just the, the pattern, the uh, the I don't know what else to say, but the perfection of God's plan. I hadn't ever seen it. I hope that's happening for you, that you're seeing the pieces all come together and the, the beauty of God's plan in the book of Romans. I believe that if you can get a hold of the big ideas of the book of Romans, you have got a pretty solid biblical theology. And theology matters. You know, what you believe about God, what you know about God, it matters a lot that we have that solid, doesn't it? Because that's what our life grows out of. What we believe is what we live into and out of. So, Romans, fabulous book. And now, I can't believe I get to start off talking with you about chapter 8. <laughs> My favorite, favorite chapter in the whole Bible if Romans is the Himalayas of the New Testament, chapter 8 is Everest. You know, it's fabulous, just fabulous. Paul almost falls all over himself with his words, trying to express the wonder of what he's communicating to us. So before we look at Romans 8, let's just look over our shoulder at, at Chapters 1 through 7, we saw humanity's desperate condition, the fact that all of us have sinned, all are under condemnation. We've seen God's good law, but our inability to obey this law. We've seen God's gift of Jesus, who took the penalty of our sin, our failure on himself when he died on the cross. And then our resulting justification if we choose to follow him and believe who he is and what he did. Justification meaning our right relationship with him, right standing before God. And incredibly, peace with God. Peace with God. No longer enemies. Dramatic, remarkable story. 
So, we come to the first verse of chapter 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word therefore actually looks back at all that Paul has been talking about in chapters 1 through 7. His plan, you know, it's so magnificent that we should be playing the Hallelujah Chorus in the background, you know? What a wonderful verse this is. We've seen this word condemnation earlier in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul has clarified that all are sinners and live under condemnation. But now, in Christ, and that's one of um, Paul's favorite little phrases, but now, in Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Because he took all that condemnation on himself on the cross. The, the, the condemnation that we deserve was just poured out on Jesus on the cross. Have you... Have you internalized this reality? There's no condemnation. How should that affect our lives if we truly believe this, really internalize this? If, this, if it's moved from your brain to your heart and you believe it that deeply. Um, I think of when I was a new mom my first, my first child, little boy, um, wanted so hard to be the best mom I could possibly be. And my mom often either directly told me or insinuated that I really wasn't quite meeting the mark in the mother category. <laughs> I wasn't uh, strict enough. And he got away with stuff he shouldn't have gotten away with. And there kind of a tape played with that kind of a theme. And my mom and I did not live close to each other. And sometimes I would go to the mailbox, and those were, some of you remember the letters, you know, you wrote to each other? <laughs> I would go to the mailbox, and if I saw a letter in there, my mom, I just kind of get this dread in my spirit, you know. Oh, man, what is she going to tell me I did wrong this time? This kind of cloud of anxiety and inadequacy. You ever kind of have that kind of a cloud of anxiety about how God really feels about you? How, how many of us hear these whispers in the background of our lives? We're not good enough. Must have to do more to merit his love and his care. We, we, we must continue to somehow pay for our sins, our, our bad attitudes, our messed up motives, all those kinds of things. What does that sense of kind of hovering condemnation what does that produce in us? Fear, isn't it? Fear that we, we just can't make it. Of course we can't, but there's no condemnation 
fear that our, um, maybe we are not justified. Maybe we don't really have the righteousness that God says he's offering. Maybe it's really not just for me. Listen to this verse again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you say that with me? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get this into you somehow. Memorize it. Tell it to yourself. Put it on your bathroom mirror. Believe it. He's not mad at you. And he's not going to punish you because he already took all the punishment, remember? Speak these words to yourself. I love this quotation. He was for us in the place of condemnation. Okay, let's stop right there. Who do you think in that sentence he is? Who was for us? Jesus. For who? Us, us. What is the place of condemnation? Where is that? The cross, right? The cross, remember, it's on the cross that that condemnation was poured onto him. So he was for us in that place of condemnation, on the cross. We are in him where all condemnation has spent its force. Okay, all condemnation has spent its force. That's the cross again in that place. And we are in him there. Look back at Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In some way, you and I cannot really grasp, we participated in the death of Christ. Now, I can't really get that, but I can believe it. And so we died with him, our old nature, our old selves. How do we live into that reality? Well, chapter 8 opens new horizons for us. Depending on how you count it, and Lily mentioned this last week, Romans 7, chapter 7, has approximately 31 references to the law and one reference to the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, it is the verse that is our memory verse. And in our memory verse, it talks about new life of the Spirit. So that's the reason we chose that for our title for this study. Chapter 8 has 19 references to the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic change, isn't it? Law, spirit. In fact, if you look at Romans 8, um, just look at the expanse of it, you see all of those references to spirit sprinkled all the way through that chapter. I know you can't read that, but I just wanted you to see visually how the, how the spirit permeates this chapter. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit just bursts upon the scene. And all talk of defeat is ended. 
Granted, there's still warfare between our flesh and this new life in the Spirit, this new identity in Christ. But where the Spirit is in control, there's the ability to live with power. Not power that you and I, you know, work up, but power that is infused into us from the Spirit. We live into it. This is revolutionary. (laughs) Maybe you know that in the Old Testament... The, there was very limited access of human beings to this third person of the Trinity. And by the way, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, if you, if you were uh, reading King James um, years ago, and I, I don't know if the King James still uses this terminology, but I was raised with the Holy Ghost, and he did not sound very interesting or appealing to me. <laughs> so so let's, let's put that ghost thing away. And, and realize that this, this Holy Spirit, but remember too, that this is not just a, um, you know, this, this is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a person, as is, as just like the other two persons of the Trinity, God and Jesus. So, limited access to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Certain people, usually a leader, or prophets, kings, would have the Holy Spirit gifted to them, but it was usually just for a specific purpose, and the language of Scripture suggests that the Holy Spirit was upon them, not in them. For example, when David was identified as the future king of Israel, Scripture tells us this, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So this is not indwelling. This is like a placing upon. And it was often a temporary condition. The Holy Spirit could be taken away. That happened to King Saul, the, Saul, the king before David. And in one of his psalms, David prays, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, the Psalms, many of the Psalms are just perfect prayers for you and me. Maybe you pray the the Psalms. Let me tell you something. You don't need to pray this prayer. You don't need to ask the Holy Spirit. What I do? No, okay. You don't need to ask God not to take his Holy Spirit from you. Let me show you why. Jesus, last night with his disciples, he told them about the gift that would be theirs after his death and resurrection. He said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, in other words, someone to come alongside you, to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. This is Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, how long is the Holy Spirit going to be in you? Forever. And he will be in you, and he will abide with you. Don't you love that word? Make his home with you. Be just the way you abide, you, you live with someone. That's the kind of close, closer than a brother um, 
relationship we have with him. And then at Pentecost, which was a feast that the Jews celebrated in Jerusalem, there was the, a, a lot of them had come together. This was after the resurrection. And they were in a, a building, and all of a sudden, this great rushing wind came upon them. And something that looked like t uh, tongues of fire came on their head. And it, incidentally, fire is one of the symbols of the Holy Spirit, which is the reason we chose that logo for the front of your study. And kept with it the picture of the heart, because we don't want to forget that it's a matter of the heart, as our last study said. And now we have new life that enables us to live out of that um, new condition. So wind, fire, the ability to speak in different languages, very dramatic event. From then on, the Holy Spirit indwelt and currently indwells believers. Believers, what, what, what difference do you suppose that make, made in the lives of those, those believers? What difference should it make to us? I think about um, the passage we talked about last week. Remember these words from chapter 7? I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Wretched man that I am. This, that's just a, par, a section of this passage where Paul talks about a person who's just writhing in frustration, living in defeat, unable to, unable to live consistency. Let me suggest a slightly different interpretation of this passage. Lily talked about this last week, that there are lots of interpretations of this last part of chapter 7. Perhaps those words of frustration and defeat point to a person who has chosen to follow Jesus, considers himself a believer, tries to live a good life, but does not understand, maybe has never been told, that he has the Holy Spirit resident within him. I was teaching a, a Sunday school, adult Sunday school class a few years ago back in Ohio, and we talked about the Holy Spirit that morning. A woman came up to me, a woman older than I. She came up to me and she looked at me and she said, I never heard about him, about the Holy Spirit. I, d I never knew that, that he was even relevant to me. She said, I'm going to go home and give my pastor a piece of my mind. <laughs> that's, a, that's a tragedy. That's a true tragedy. You know, you can't turn on a light. You can't, you, you, in order to have a light on, you have to turn the switch, right? And if you don't even know there's a light in the room, you won't even look for a plug. So knowing who this Holy Spirit is and knowing that he and dwells is the source of the power that we live into. Okay, um, let's go on to 
Look at Peter, same man who denied Jesus only days before is infused with power and, and, and uh, purpose after Pentecost. What's happened to him? Look with me at chapter 8. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you think it's possible for someone who is a Jesus follower to set his mind on the flesh? Difference of opinion here. Let's look again at this word flesh. It's, it's hard for us not to think of flesh as just the body, you know, the physical um, nature and the, the passions and the lusts and the habits and all the stuff that goes with the, the body. But it's really a better term than that. Um, it refers to our fallen egocentric human nature, the sin-dominated self. That's John Stott's definition. Another word define it is the earthly nature of man prone to sin and opposed to God. So it's our, it basically it's our, our tendency to follow the world, you know, to follow and to be preoccupied with ourselves. Is it possible for a believer to lapse into living out of that old nature even if he's been justified and he's right with God? Can there be that great a divide between our position? Okay, our position is justified, made righteous, right with God. That's our standing before him, our position. Can there be a great divide between our position and our condition, the way we live our lives? If, you, if we've responded to Jesus' call in our lives, we have been declared righteous on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's justification. But for the rest of our lives, we should be in process, right? Becoming more and more like him so that our condition begins to measure up to, meet with, be consistent with our position. That's That's the process of our lives, isn't it? Becoming, kind of becoming in reality how God has, how he sees us. He sees us in Jesus. The question is, whose work is that? Is it the work of the Holy Spirit or is it up to me? I think Paul helps us here as we look back into chapter 8. Let's look at these, these verses again. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Which comes first, the way you live or the way you think? Doesn't your lifestyle begin with the way you think? If you're in a, a person in whom the Spirit dwells, you have the power from him to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. 
And as you experience this, you also experience life and peace. And the, the more I ponder this, the more practical it seems to me. You know, we all know that what permeates our mind is what drives our behavior. So where do I set my mind? Where do you set your mind? How do we do that? You'll be talking about that at your table. I think it's an important question. What else can we discover about the Holy Spirit from this passage? Notice that Paul states, you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Look at that last sentence. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Do you think we can reverse that sentence without changing its meaning? In other words, can we state anyone who belongs to Christ has the spirit of Christ? I think we do no damage to the text by doing that. That's such a clear statement that if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit resident within you. It's from the time that you say yes to Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit within you. In fact, the, the Spirit's indwelling is actually evidence that you belong to Jesus. Paul continues in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his Spirit that dwells in you. Okay, who raised Jesus from the dead? The spirit of him, God did, who raised it, Jesus from the dead. Do you hear this, this verse? Do you hear this? Is this enough power for you? Is, is that enough life for you, both in this world and in eternity? Transformation, a process that is in process during this life and ultimately will result in a perfected, immortal body. Wow. A few minutes ago, I asked whose work the transformation process is, yours or the spirit. Let's look at verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds, another word there is the practices of the body, you will live. Who's at work in that verse? The spirit, you, spirit, both? I would think so, wouldn't you? Because this happens by the spirit, it's his power, but you put to death the deeds of the body. I remember reading once that God is opposed to earning, not to effort. It's an interesting distinction. We can't earn anything from God. But our involvement in the process of becoming more like Jesus is essential. We have a part to play in our growth toward God godliness, while the Holy Spirit is the initiator and the enabler of that process. And then, if that's not enough, look at the assurance that we're given. For all, who? All, you and I, 
All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children and heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Do you hear all that family language in that, in that passage? Children of God, adoption, Abba. Maybe you know that, that that's the word that Jesus used when he was praying. He called his father Abba. It means daddy. It's a term of intimacy. That kind of closeness, that kind of connection, living together, the spirit bearing witness, he speaks to your spirit, reminding you of who you are, what he's done for you, the, the power that he offers you. And finally, again, heirs. And you'll be talking with that, about that at your table too. Heirs. What do we inherit? My goodness. Life, incredible, abundant life today and in the future, in eternity. You see all the activity of the Holy Spirit on our behalf? Led by the Spirit, the Spirit bearing witness, encouraging us, reminding us of who we are in Jesus, that we're God's children, we're adopted into his family, we're heirs of a glorious inheritance experienced partially in this life, fully in the next if you hear those voices telling you that you're not good enough and maybe there's some condemnation still hanging out there waiting for you, don't listen. Reject them. It's not true. That comes from the evil one, those, those voices. Listen to the witness of the Spirit in your life. This whole chapter, and we've only talked about half of it, pours out assurance for us. Some commentators call this the assurance chapter. What God has done for us, who we are in him, the power, the freedom, the intimacy with our Father, life abundant. Praise God, right? So I ask you these questions. How would it or does it affect your life to believe, to really believe that there is no condemnation? Do you live with the assurance that the Holy Spirit indwells you? And where do you set your mind? How it on Jesus? Let's pray. We hardly know how to respond, Lord, to such promises, to the reality of what you have done for us and the potential we have for you as your children. Help us to just rejoice this morning 
in the richness of this relationship, the reality of it, and help us as we live our lives to walk with the Spirit, to learn what that means, to begin to watch him transform our lives so that we become more and more like Jesus. Help us to be intentional about that, but most of all, help us to, to be, depend on you to see that process continue. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for life abundant. We pray in your strong name. Amen.